I, um, I heard a short story recently about an older Catholic priest who attended an all-church meeting. About 200 men and women were present, so a little bit bigger than this. And they were there to reflect on what a church, what the church, what their church should be doing. What should our church be doing? So at one point, one of the clergy stood up and asked very pointedly, what is the most important thing the church has to give to the world? What is the most important thing the church has to give to the world? I thought that was a very interesting and beautiful question. See, the story goes on that many people chimed in. Many parishioners started to stand up. Well, the church needs to challenge you know, the young folk and their, their crazy rock music. Or the church needs to challenge people to care more for the poor. Or the church needs to challenge people to find deeper meaning. The church needs to challenge consumerism and secularism. I'd be curious, what would you guys say? If we had an all-church meeting, and this right now turned into a giant circle, we said, what is the most important thing the church has to give to the world? What would you yell out? Love, okay, all right. Love Jesus. I wasn't planning on people yelling out, but I'm super pumped right now. This is awesome. This gets me very excited. I love it. See, even for those here who aren't Christian or unchurched or don't go to church, again, I can assume even you too have a thought or an opinion about what the church has to give. Let's, um, let's do one better. What does God say to that question? What is God's opinion of that question? Let me finish the story. The story finishes that an older woman in the church noticed that all of the, all of the um, suggestions had to do with challenges. All of them had to do with challenges. And she thought, valid as those are, none of them to her mind were the nail in the head. So she stood up and she said one word. She said, consolation. She shouted, consolation. So what would God's answer to that question be? Well, the Old Testament book of Isaiah says, Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. See, friends, if you agree with that opinion or not about the story of whatever the church, but whatever. But I don't know about you, but comfort to me right now sure sounds nice. A big old heaping of mashed potato comfort, like thrown on our plates, is something I really, really want right now. To drink from the well of consolation, that being comfort, that being solace, that being peace in times of anxiety and distress, especially during the holiday season, especially during the holiday season. See, some of us hear that song um, on the radio that it's the most wonderful time of year, right? Somebody just laughed, (laughs) right? Because a natural reaction for people who could be all the way stressed out to suffering, they hear that song play in the radio and it brings a guttural reaction of like, nah, singer man, no. <laughs> See, right now, it doesn't feel like the most t- wonderful time of year for so many of us. I know it doesn't for me. It does not feel like the most wonderful time of year. We need, I need, we need comfort. We need comfort. And we need comfort that's more than seasonal and far more than circumstantial. Now, imagine that feeling of waiting for comfort. All of us thinking, yes, life stinks. We want that comfort. Waiting for that comfort. Imagine that feeling, longing for it, yearning for it all of our life. 
like, like, a, like a, a sun that never rised or, or imagine it as if you ordered your food and it never came to the table. That constant yearning and wanting, yearning and wanting, where is it, where is it, where is this comfort? That feeling of where is it-ness is exactly, is exactly what we are to feel at Christmas. See, it's, it's this emotion, it's this moment where you go, ah, there's something more. Church history calls this time Advent. They call it Advent, which means it's just this waiting, it's preparation for, for, for consolation. And few people know this hunger better than an elderly man by the name of Simeon, who I'm probably going to call Simon like a million times accidentally. Bear with me. But his name is Simeon. And in this period of time for Israel, that's God's people... It was rampant with, with depression and oppression and exhaustion and fear and uncertainty. But there was a small group of people within that craziness, within that circus of emotions, there was a small group of people waiting for a hero, waiting for consolation, waiting for a Messiah. A small group of people, a remnant of beating hearts in tune for the coming God. Simeon, who Gretchen just read about beautifully, Simeon was one of those beating hearts. Now, if you guys are familiar with the Christmas story, you've been around church forever, you watch a million Christmas movies or whatever, I probably wouldn't be too shocked if you realize that Simeon gets like no love. As far as the Christmas story goes, Simeon's like an outcast. He's never in nativity plays, Hallmark's forgotten about him, Charlie Brown doesn't mention him, and most churches like gloss over him. But not Luke, not Luke. Luke, the author of our verses tonight, actually devotes more space to him than the shepherds and the angels. So it's right that we give Simeon some time. You see, Simeon is this man, like all the people in the Old Testament. Simeon is a man like all the other people in the Old Testament, every man, woman, and child, who are in a perpetual state of waiting. They're constantly waiting and yearning for, basically, Christmas morning. Anybody, I mean, there's some kids in here, but I don't know if you guys are this way or if you have children and all they're doing is freaking out that it's like 14 days to Christmas and they wake up at 13 days to Christmas and it's 12 days to Christmas. Our kids like punch each other who gets to run down the stairs and turn this little wooden knob for it to go from 14 to 13. And it's like, oh, yes. And they love it every day, five to four. And they get so excited to, just until it gets to day one. And they get so pumped. It's this yearning. And that same excitement that exists within my children's bones, and I'm assuming that exists in your children's bones, exists within the very bones of Simeon. But, 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 Simeon is one of the only men in the Bible, and I would say all of human history, that not only longed for the birth of Christ in his life, but also for his death. Also for his death. That's what we read, right? Did you guys pick up on that? Look at verse 26 again in your Bible. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death. That he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. To me, this is an old mama moment. Like, this is, this is awesome. See, Simeon was immortal until he had seen with his own two eyes the Savior of the world. Now, let's have this sink in for a moment into our soft jelly brains because this is too good to pass up and at least talk about. Because if you were just to find out that you would not die until something were to happen, 
I don't know about you, but my mind immediately went to Bill Murray and Groundhog Day. Anybody else? You guys know what I'm talking about? There was nothing he wouldn't do. Do you remember? I, I can't get into all the stuff because there's some kids here, but we can't get into everything. But it would be diving out of planes with no parachutes. It's swimming with sharks. It's petting rattlesnakes. It's eating raw chicken. Whatever you want to do. Those are my list of things I would do if I was immortal. That's my list. But Simeon could not die until his own two eyes had seen the Lord's Christ. And he knew this. Until his eyes had seen God so small, God fragile, God vulnerable, and God poor. Again, I want us to pick up on them because that's what verse 24 shows us, right? A pair of turtle doves, two young pigeons. I want us to be a side note for us that this is what was not to be offered at the temple for cultural purification. But these sacrifices were acceptable for those who were poor or impoverished, a.k.a. Mary and Joseph. Also, side note, many commentators, and this will ruin your Christmas idea, but many commentators show that because they did, you know, turtle doves and whatnot, the wise men had not yet come because they would have had some moolah with them. They would have had some, some gold with them. So it comes to show them right now that the wise men have not come, and here Jesus is going into the temple for purification. So go home, take your porcelain wise men, and you throw them out the window from your nativity scene. <laughs> they should have offered a spotless lamb. But anyway, for this child to be brought in and Simeon to behold the king of the world. He's been waiting his entire life. He knows he cannot die until he sees God's salvation to the world. And as he's in the temple, in walks this baby. In walk, well, the mommy's holding the baby. <laughs> this baby is being held, this baby is brought in, and you can only imagine, like it, it just feels like the first time that somebody's seen a sunrise. It's like the first time somebody's eaten a California burrito. Like it's just this amazing moment of goodness. For Simeon to know, think about this. Think about Simeon's emotions. For Simeon to know that he's not crazy. Simeon, the moment, he's not crazy. Why? Faith assured, promise fulfilled, God with us, hope alive, joy encountered, and consolation, all wrapped up in swaddling clothes. Simeon knows this more than, more than ever within his life. And gingerly, we see that he takes this baby, which probably freaks out every new mother in here but he takes this baby in his arms. And with like puffy eyes and tear-filled eyes, Simeon holds God. Simeon holds God. Verse 27. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do him according to the custom of the law, Simeon, he took him up in his arms. So Simeon holds God as close as possible to his heart. It's beautiful. Why is he holding this little baby as close as possible to his heart? Verse 25. Simeon, this man, was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting for comfort. He's been waiting for comfort. Again, many of us are waiting for comfort. Now, you're going to have to forgive me because tonight I'm not going to do any justice to these verses. I'm not going to do justice to these verses that they, as much as they need to, to be, have justice done for. I mean, they're just so rich. There could be a million sermons on them. But as I read and reread and read and reread these verses all week, I just, kept, I, I just couldn't get past waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. I just could not get past it. 
could not get past the idea of waiting for comfort. So let me ask, friends here, both Christian and unchristian, religious or irreligious, when life is stinkeroo, how do you find comfort? When life stinks, how do you find comfort? Is it comfort food? Is it comforting drinks? Is it comfortable people? Is it comfortable places? You see, the nation of Israel, they too, like all of us, have all tested and tried all temporary, temporal comforts. This, you know, this thing is uncomfortable. I'm going to search for this. And we can look throughout the Old Testament pages of the Bible, and it sees constantly that it was new leaders, new kings, new places, new worship, new lands, and new possessions. Oh, we can't find comfort here. This is discomfort. We got to look for this, this, and this. To put that in modern terms, they're basically looking for new pastors, new churches, new communities, new jobs, new relationships, new cities, new schools, new roommates, and new spouses. Now, what I want us to get is I'm not demonizing some of that stuff, and I'm not even saying all that stuff is bad. That stuff feels good. Oh, getting away from discomfort by cutting it out and putting in something new feels good. Oh my gosh, I don't have to be around this person anymore. I don't have to be around this church anymore. I don't have to be around this job anymore. This feels great. I feel comfortable in my new place. But, 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 at the end of the day, they do very little to resolve the difficulties on which we need comfort for. Let me explain that. To Simeon, there was no everlasting comfort to stake his life on other than this child. There was no other comfort within life and with death than this child. I mean, the carols we sing have it right. I think we're singing the song tonight. I might be wrong. But God rest you, merry gentlemen, right? Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ, our Savior, who was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power. When we've gone astray, oh, tidings of what? Oh, tidings of what? Comfort and joy. Simeon's life, and apparently it's his death, waiting for comfort, and it did not come in boxes, in bows, in a poem, in an explanation. It came in a person. It came in a person. See, God's solution to a suffering world is his suffering son. See, to learn this Christmas season for us right now as a small little community or to learn all over again that any comfort, that any comforts outside of God's solution, that being Jesus Christ, is temporal alleviation. Any comfort outside of Jesus Christ is going to be temporal alleviation. It's a pack of band-aids. So as basic as it is, and I think I tried to maybe make it elegant or sound pretty or 140 characters, so somebody would be like, oh, I'm going to tweet that. As basic as it is, I said, forget that, because here it is. Here's the basic elementary truth. Jesus is the only true source of comfort, period. Jesus is the only true source of eternal comfort, Final, close the curtains. See, Christ is not only the author of people's comfort, but the matter and grounds of it. That is what Simeon counted on. I mean, that was his entire lot in life. That was everything. He wagered everything on that truth. Now, I think I'm bothered. That's probably too strong of a word, but there's an upsetting in my soul, when we read this about Simeon, that what Simeon was getting or what he was learning in that moment was extremely special and rare. 
unbelievably special and rare what was happening in that moment. That truth, that time, that was so rare for this to be happening. And once a year, Christmas strikes and all that rarity for us now, 2016, Los Angeles, all that rarity is smashed to bits. Meaning life, Christmas, those truths become overly familiar. What Simeon soaked up and held close to him for the vast majority is now overly familiar. And again, like a sledgehammer, it smashes all secular and secular cultural spheres of life to bits. And suddenly Jesus Christ is everywhere. Everybody's waiting for Jesus, this baby. And then all of a sudden, Christmas comes around. Jesus is everywhere, everywhere. Don't get me wrong. Parts of me loves it. Parts of me are bothered. It's crazy to me that I know as I'm driving down the street, that person does not like the church or faith or religion or Christianity or whatever, but yet he's got some sort of plastic molding of Jesus and a nativity in his front lawn. Jesus is everywhere. It's insanity to me, insanity to me. I was literally shopping with my wife the other day in the mall and we're standing in the mall and I'm literally hearing Christmas music going in the background, praising Christ as king in the mall and everybody's just walking around. That Jesus has come and he's coming as a baby and all this type of stuff and people are just walking around eating hot dog on a stick like it's no big deal. I was doing the same thing, but it was one of those moments where it's like, this is what's happening? The single greatest truth, that rare, extreme, scandalous moment of all time that the unreachable God reached down. Not that, you know, not that man and woman become gods, but God became man. The scandalous truth, not that we ascend, but that God descended. Again, all that has culturally morphed into this over-familiar music that plays at Foot Locker when we eat Panda Express. It baffles my mind. This rarity... This rarity comforted Simeon today. <laughs> All good, buddy. I love you. You should go. You should go. Any <laughs> best. <laughs> what was I saying? All right. <laughs> Panda Express. <laughs> oh, that's too good. I want to read verse 28 of Simeon's response. 28, Simeon's response. This is this poem of his, this song of his is gorgeous. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Basically, now you're going to start letting your servant, I can pass on, I can die. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles, unbelievably scandalous, and for glory to your people, Israel. Now, like I said, all week I've been racking my brain, wanting comfort, needing comfort, talking to my friends here, telling them that I would love a healthy dosing of comfort this week. And knowing God is an all-comforting God and that Christian, you know, the Christian faith is a, Christ, is a faith of comfort, but realizing during my prep that um, there are surprisingly many, many, many pitfalls and myths with one of the most crucial characteristics of God, that being comfort. So many pitfalls and myths. So if it's okay for you, for the sake of time, I'd like to go over some like railings as we ascend to truly behold this idea. And you can write them down, but I just want to go over some like simple principles of understanding comfort, godly comfort. 
So if you're cool with that, I'm going to go for it. If you're not cool with it, (laughs) principle number one, and these were very, very helpful and crucial for me this past week to understand these. I don't want this to be vague. So we can't just say God or Jesus is, yeah, I don't want this to be vague. Principle number one, when the world defines comfort, this is what they say. I'm pretty sure I got this from Webster or somebody. Uh, The world would define comfort as a state of physical ease and freedom from pain or the easing or alleviation of a person's distress. But I want us to get, if that's how the world defines it, that is not how Christianity defines it. That is not so with Christianity. Comfort comes not with the alleviation or the ease of distress, but in the midst of distress, in the midst of distress, in the eye of the storm. That's where comfort can be found. And this is so, so, so true and needs to be so prevalent at Christmas time. I want to read this quote by a priest by the name of Avery who totally agrees with what I'm saying. I love this quote. I think he wrote it like 50 years ago. This is what he says. The the incarnation does not mean that God saves us from the pains of life. It means that God is with us. For the Christian, just as for everyone else, there will be cold, lonely seasons, seasons of sickness, seasons of frustration, and a season within which we will die. Christmas does not give us a ladder to climb out of the human condition. It gives us a drill that lets us burrow into heart of everything that is and there find it shimmering with divinity. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting solutions and healings or a God to fix and mend in the midst of distress or suffering. But Christian comfort, gospel comfort, is not and never was promised to be about temporal ease or alleviation. That is not godly comfort. Christian comfort does promise that no suffering or distress or frustrations with this world, none of that will ever be meaningless in the hands of an eternal God. That's the drill that burrows down into, that drills down into the burrows, into the heart of everything. Principle number two, where does our comfort actually come from? Again, I don't want it to just be like, I need comfort. Well, God, <laughs> I don't want it to be that. I don't want it to be just, well, just jesus it. What does that actually mean? Where does our comfort come from? Where does it actually come from? So look at verse 29 again. I thought this was very striking because this is, must have been comforting Simeon this whole time. What does he say, verse 29? According to your word. According to your word. See, comfort in the Bible is, geez, it's gotta be majority of the time is always paired with promises. Comfort is paired with promises. This is one of the main issues with temporal comforts. With temporal comforts. They overpromise and underdeliver every time. Every time. No, this is supposed to turn out this way. No, this is what this product is supposed to do. No, this is what they told me. Overpromise, underdeliver every time with temporal comforts. But God's promises is this brass key to the chest of comfort. Let me help say these things that'll build my point. I'm going to blast these off. Be ready, production team. Psalm 119.50. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Psalm 119.76. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Psalm 119.52. When I think of your rules from old, I take comfort, O Lord. 
And one of my personal favorite consolations in all of scripture comes from Paul the apostle. We've gotten to know him in the book of Acts. He's incredible, but he says this. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. Who's that sound like right now? Anybody else feel like that? We're utterly burdened beyond our strength. We are out of strength. We are on empty. Out of strength that we despaired of life itself. And then verse nine, he talks about his consolation. Indeed, that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul was comforted in the midst of the most extreme suffering where he basically goes, I thought we we were dead. I was certain of my death, absolutely certain of my death. And then God by his spirit reminded Paul of what Paul knew to be true and this comforted him. I don't know, I was just talking to Andy backstage and we're talking back and forth and it's truths that we've said to each other or I've said aloud a million times, but Andy's saying them to me and it's like, She's reminding of what I already knew to be true, and this comforted me. These type of promises are multifaceted. They're multifaceted. See, take comfort with the God. Think about Paul's. Take comfort with the God who's defeated death. He too can overcome this. Take comfort with Jesus and his eternal assurance, not merely a temporal alleviation. Take comfort that God does what he says over and over and over and over. I was thinking, what promises do you need to hear today? What promise would you need to hear today? Life, total blah. What promise do you need for that? Do we need to remember the promise of rest where Jesus has come to me? What promise do we need to hear today that, that there's power and weakness? What promise do we need to hear today that God will supply all of our needs? That we are more than conquerors? And If you're sitting here and none of these things are comforting, none of these things are comforting you, could it be because in those moments we're like, yeah, I've turned to the Bible, I've turned to prayer, I've turned to church, I've done, uh." could it be though that we aren't looking for everlasting comfort as we're searching through those things? Like going down the aisles of the verses of the Bible looking for a pill to pop. We could be looking for momentary ease. I know I'm guilty of this all the time. God, give me that one Bible verse. Fix, nice. Consider this. Consider this. What if our ability to be comforted in troubles is directly connected to our forgetting, our forgetting or our beholding the promises of God? We must view comfort branching out from the oak of assurances or the oak of his promises. All right, let's bust these. Principle number three, because humanity has paired comfort with ease, we intrinsically then pair comfort with easy. That comfort is now going to be easy. Again, that's alleviation. Medication is easy, an injection is easy, a pill is easy. You take it, you sit back, you wait. Gospel comfort is more like a quest. It's a quest, it's a hike towards the summit. Comfort takes work which is the last thing we want to do when we want to be comforted is work. Comfort takes work, it takes study, it takes conversation, it takes exhortations, community, prayer, discipline, and honest people. If you are in a time where you need comfort, I know what I want to do is I want to go find Uncle Billy to pat me on the back who's like, no, whatever you do is great. Whatever you, we need honest people in times of comfort. Somebody be like, no, you're being an idiot. <laughs> For some reason, that's comforting. But we're being, you know, does that make sense? We need honest people. And we need a severe level 
of personal commitment to finding out true biblical comfort over ease. I cannot care more. This is true of our discipleship and our discipleship groups. I cannot be more committed to your comfort, true biblical comfort, than you can. It's true of our discipleship here as well. Principle number four. 2 Corinthians, a letter in the New Testament, promises that God is the God of all comfort. God is the God of all comfort. Not just global tragedies or massive suffering, but if you are struggling with your boyfriend, with your girlfriend, God promises comfort. If you are struggling with anything that's weighing you down, finals are around, you know, they, maybe they just got over, whatever, God has promised comfort in that time. All sorts of comfort are stored up in God. All sorts. No matter what we may, may require, God has just the remedy of what we need. And I was just reading this. This is so beautiful. I was just reading this. I was sharing it with my wife. I love that the Bible promises whatever degree of suffering that you have, whatever level of degree, the Bible also promises a degree of comfort to that exact level, to that same level. Oh, no, no, no. I've suffered this, this much, this much, this much. The Bible promises whatever degree of suffering you have suffered, you will then be comforted with. we'll finish this principle five. I promise I'm closing soon. Jesus, the true comforter, causes great discomfort. Jesus, the true comforter, causes great discomfort. I'm going to read Simeon in verse 34, where he said, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. This little baby is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. See, even in this room right now, Christ has risen people up, or we have stumbled over him and fallen. It's probably safe to assume that some here love Jesus, and some here hate Jesus. Some reject, and some receive. Some push, and some pull. Some come near, and some hide. So with that, what I want us to see is comfort as a choice. Comfort is a choice. Like our salvation, we can choose to receive, put our life in Jesus. Like our repentance is a choice. We can choose to make the quest. See, it's not easy. None of the stuff with comfort is easy. None of it is easy. Even knowing these promises doesn't make it easy, but it does, it does, it does make it worth it. It absolutely makes it worth it. I was reading recently about the, um, the Heidelberg Catechism. If anybody knows what that is or not, this is a centuries-old teaching tool which helps explain the doctrine of the Christian faith. It's been around for centuries. And essentially all it does is ask very basic questions over and over. The most basic of life questions over and over, and it shows how the doctrine of Christianity answers these things. And from 450 years ago, when this was written, around that time, Hundreds of years ago. Do you know what the very first question, not question five, not question whatever, do you know what the very first question was? Let me read it to you. It asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? It doesn't talk about preaching. It doesn't talk about, it doesn't talk about make sure you read your Bible a bunch. It doesn't talk about make sure you pray. It doesn't talk about this and this or that. It talks about what is your only comfort in life and in death? Because for the last 450 years and beyond the beginning of time, people have been wanting to know, what is my comfort in life and in death? We are no different today in this moment than people have been for hundreds of years. This is the response to that question. 
Allow me to read it to you again. This is centuries and centuries old answer. It's beautiful. Allow me to read this over you and to you as it's been so ministering to me. This is what it says. What is your only comfort in life and in death? It is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He is fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And when Simeon came to know this in his gut and to see this with his eyes, and he held little nine pounds, eight ounces Jesus, whatever he was, he breaks out into song. When Mary, his mother, figured out what was going on, she heard a lot about little Jesus, God coming into this world, she broke out into song. When Zechariah was confronted in the Bible and he heard about what was going on in the New Testament, he was comforted, excuse me, he was, he was bursting and exploding with song. The truth that was brought to Elizabeth, she bursted with song. The angels, when they found out what God was doing, they bursted with song. May that be true of us tonight. There's a little of us in here. Let's make it loud. I want the police to have to come and shut this place down for noise level. That would be epic. I want us to come to the carpet if you need to sing tonight. Lift your arms, stand, sit, whatever, but let us burst and explode with song tonight. As well, here's what I know we have a room full of. And not a room full of, I shouldn't say that. But there's some people here that will deny comfort maybe even in this moment. They'll say, no, 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 no. We're gonna deny comfort even in this moment. It's what we do. So let me be bold to to say this to all of us. Please don't be the person who says, no, I don't want to be a burden to anybody. Please don't be the person who says, no, I, I don't want somebody else to have to hear about this or go through this or tell, to bear that. The nature of the gospel or the good news of Jesus is that the church, us, one another, bears one another's burdens. The Bible says we are to comfort one another as we've been comforted. So if we are comforted by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are then to go comfort others. So with that, will you let us pray for you tonight? There's gonna be people on that back wall. There's gonna be people on that back wall. They're wearing lanyards. Go to them for prayer. I'm not gonna interrogate you. They're gonna intercede for you. Go with them, especially if you're like, I cannot find any comfort. Go to them, go to them, go to them. Nobody's gonna be shocked if you go up and you tell them like, this is what's going on in my life. And they're like, oh, you're the devil. Like, go. Then nobody's gonna do that. There's no shock value with our prayer team. They're gonna pray for you. Let us pray for you tonight, please. And lastly, lastly, This last point I'm going to make for 2016. That's nuts. The last point I'm going to make for 2016 is this. Remember this as you go and celebrate Christmas this coming up week. Remember this, that yes, Jesus came. Jesus came at Christmas time, but he did not just come. I want us to get that Jesus was given. Jesus was given. For unto us a child is born and a son is given. What's the most famous flag that they wave at football games, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus is a gift. Jesus is a gift. Gifts are my love language, so I'm all about this. Know that if you want to buy me gifts. Jesus is a gift. That's the central event of Christmas and of all gift giving. 
God gave a son, Christ then gave his life, right? The Bible says hours before Christ's death, he broke the bread with communion. He broke the bread, the broken, the broken bread, a symbol of his brutally beaten body that was broken for us, the drink, a symbol of his poured out blood. I was thinking this horrific truth, I want us to read this verse, is what would pierce a mother's heart. Look at verse 35 of chapter two. Simeon would, t- Simeon would tell Jesus' mother, and a sword will pierce through your own soul. He said, your heart is going to break for the body that is going to be torn apart for the world. It's extremely graphic, and there's a level of discomfort, but a discomfort so that we may be assured of our eternal comfort. Now, I'm going to say this, and I don't think we've said this enough at Collective Church, but I want to say this about communion right here, right now. We would ask, we would ask that there are two groups of people here tonight, two groups of people who would abstain from coming to the table and receiving communion. Two groups. One would be those who here who aren't Christian, who do not follow Jesus, who possibly aren't sure that they are Christians or not. Whatever it is, if you do not follow or are not a follower of Christ, we'd ask that you would abstain from the table tonight. Here's the reason being. This is a tangible sacrament expression of us and our common union with Christ. Our common union, communion, common union with Christ. And the other group is this. The other group is this. It'd be those who willingly reject the beauty of repentance. That's to turn from sin and read headlong into God. The Bible says that before you take communion, that you are to examine yourself to see if there's any hearts, thoughts, whatever may be going on in your life that may need repentance. To examine if Christ, the bride, the faith, the church, the community, his word is a cause of our rising or our falling. Friends, let's end this year. Let's end this year. Let's end this year, not by clinging to temporal comforts. Can we do that? Let's not cling to temporal comforts. But I want us to watch and wait like Simeon at Christmas time at the end of 2016, assured, assured of a greater comfort and the only true comforter. Amen? Let's pray.